So the name of the song is Axel F. Who is the musician? Glenn Frey of the Eagles. Oh, God! Yep. The worst, the worst of the horrible Eagles. Why isn't the intro playing? Oh, there it is. Nice and quiet. This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. And there's definitely a, f- a fortune being made in the crime that we will be discussing today. There is a right wing war on education taking place right now. No, I'm not talking about goose stepping Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his book bans, which are certain to turn into book burning soon, staging what I can only assume would be his own musical version of Fahrenheit 451. Sure, he's part of the problem, but the Florida governor is far from the greatest challenge facing the present and future of higher education in the United States. We are going to be speaking in a few minutes. Well, let me just say that unsurprisingly, neoliberalism also arms the war on education, putting profits before pupils. It's happening all over the country. Consulting firms enforcing neoliberalism go into states and find that publicly funded universities are facing budget shortfalls. Without considering why those shortfalls exist, these firms then turn to what profit-seeking neoliberalism always turns to, and that is, no, not cutting the huge salaries of administrators, but firing far less paid teachers and shutting down degreed programs. While they claim these cuts are solely based on the bottom line, money-losing athletics programs, budgets are never touched, while break-even liberal arts curriculum are always, is always the suggested victim. In a few minutes, we'll learn about the frightening future of education neoliberalism has for us when we speak with Dr. Lisa M. Corrigan, who posted the Nation article, The Evisceration of a Public University. West Virginia University is being gutted, and it's a preview for what's in store for higher education. Lisa is a professor of communication and director of gender studies at the University of Arkansas with over 20 years of experience in higher education. She writes about social movements, democracy, and politics. Lisa is the author most recently of Black Feelings, Race and Affect in the Long 60s. She is also author of Prison Power, How Prison Influenced the Movement for Black Liberation. Follow Lisa at Dr. Lisa Corrigan. That's Dr. Lisa Corrigan on Twitter.com. She co-hosts the podcast Lean Back, Critical Feminist Conversations with Laura Weiderhoft. Find out more about Lean Back at Lean Back Podcast on Twitter.com or go to leanbackpodcast.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing as Will Ippen. Will, how was your Labor Day weekend? It was... Amazing and restful, and the only plans I had were canceled. So wow, not even by me. So <laughs> by guilt, the other people, free cancellation. So I was a complete uh, waste of life, but in a good way. <laughs> so uh, were you indoors and in air conditioned? Uh, as much as possible, yes. Because you're like me, you only have window units. That's correct. 
And uh, sometimes on the hottest days, it makes most sense to hole up in the smallest air-conditioned room and... Uh, Just like when it's focus. really cold outside. Exactly. you got to find the smallest room in your house yep. that has steam heat. Exactly. <laughs> do we live in Chicago or what? Sure <laughs> that uh, steam heat every winter, you got to go to one certain room in your house that's the warmest in the house, and in the winter, you go to that... Or in the summer, you go to the same room where it's the coldest in the house. Oh, for me, the steam heat turns it up to like 82 to 85 in the wintertime, yeah. so we open the windows because we have control over that. And then you have Which the wonderful thing. Of actually, well, how it was designed. Oh, it really? It was designed to have airflow in the winter to, uh, they thought the airflow would help with like things like influenza and tuberculosis. That makes so, sense. Yeah. And I love the fresh air when it's really warm inside the house, even though it seems like a waste. It does. My Labor Day weekend was going great until I broke my pinky toe on Sunday. I didn't want to use the term pinky toe on air because it sounds kind of childish and I sound childish enough as it is. So I looked it up and the other words for the pinky toe are the small toe, the little toe, and the baby toe. How exactly is it a baby toe? Did the other toes reproduce somehow? Is that why the toe next to the baby toe is also known as the ring toe? Is there some kind of ceremony where the big toe, or hallux, gets married to the second or long toe with the middle toe officiating? Uh, by the way, if your second toe is longer than your big toe, it's a condition known as Morton's toe, or Greek toe, turkey toe, royal toe, or Viking toe. And because I broke my toe, as you can tell, I spent far too much time online researching toes. But more important than me breaking my toe by stubbing it while barefoot, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what do you, what will you miss most about Western civilization? What will you miss most about uh, Western civilization? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Al at our Facebook page. You can leave it on our Patreon page. You can leave it at Discord. You can email it to Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com. You can post it on our Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio. There's plenty of ways you can give us your, question, your answer to this week's question from Hell. Again, what will you miss most about Western civilization? The winner... Our, has, the person who has our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is CBD oil, or not, mostly not. <laughs> Uh, LA Weekly ran an article with the headline, Can CBD Oil Help You Recover from a Hangover? The story reports, quote, CBD oil has become the new hangover savior for a few hemp fans. I don't know hemp fans. Do you know any uh, hemp no, fans? No. I mean, maybe back in the 90s <laughs> when the youth were wearing their hemp necklaces. Oh, yeah. Bracelets. Yeah, that's, that's all a good I can point. think of, though. Um, supposedly, CBD's o CBD oil's anti-inflammatory effects help bring some semblance of normalcy to folks fighting off a massive migraine. However, the article goes on to state that just because CBD can't cure a hangover doesn't mean that it can't help in the recovery process. It's true that CBD has anti-inflammatory effects, which help pr reduce the pain patients feel during a hangover. I like that there are 
hangover patients. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm a frequent one of those. <laughs> there are also plenty of migraine patients that use CBD oil. LA Weekly warns those who may want to try CBD as a cure or an aid in the recovery process. Don't expect CBD oil to magically get rid of your symptoms the second you take it. A bit of CBD oil may decrease your pain, but it's probably not enough to get rid of a hangover. Please combine CBD oil with plenty of pure water, fresh air, and carbs on your hangover recovery day. I think they're leaving a crucial other chemical. Yeah, I think so, too. Also, hangover recovery day sounds like the worst holiday of the year. It sure does. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the Tuesday after Labor Day. Yeah, I think it is, too. Uh, That makes this week's hangover cure... CBD oil, but only when combining it with plenty of pure water, fresh air, and carbs. And I have a feeling that you can take the CBD oil pro- out of that process and just yep. plenty of pure, wa- pure water, fresh air, and carbs. Mm, probably. Another loser for yeah. CBD oil. So this week on This Is How, we did not do a show on Labor Day. So today and tomorrow, we will be doing two 90-minute shows. We will fill out the four hours on Chicago Sun Experiment, WNUR, and the UK online radio outlet, Beware the Radio, where we also air, by sharing an interview from 2006 when we spoke with anthropologist Andrea Muhlenbach, who wrote an article for Roar magazine, which still existed at the time, called How to Kill the Demos. The Water Struggle in Italy. Andrea, uh, she described how water and democracy are at odds in Italy, where political elites subverted the will of 95% of voters to set in motion plans to privatize water. She also explained how national governments have placed the demands and profits of the financial sector above the safety and human rights of its citizens from Campania in Italy to Flint, Michigan. Which brings us to a question that was asked of me recently on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Patreon patrons can now ask me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream and podcast host Chuck Merritt's a question from hell at patreon.com slash this is hell. I have no idea what the question from hell is for me until it is read by whoever is producing that week's Patreon podcast. So during the question from hell for me on Patreon a couple weeks ago, Patreon patron PF asked what it would take for me to have a four-day work week and a relaxing three-day weekend without overworking or losing sleep to do so. I answered PF's question extemporaneously on Patreon, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, Ever since my doctor told me I was at death's door and my surgeon gave me a meager 60-40 to 60, 40 chance of surviving a massive infection throughout my digestive system that made me miss three months of the show last uh, year. In fact, I couldn't stop thinking about P.F.'s question. So much so that during my monologue in the following week's Patreon podcast, I took a deep dive into what it would take for me to have a four-day work week and an actually relaxing three-day weekend, as well as the bigger issue that affects all of us, and that is... Another thing I discussed during that monologue, our relationship with time and money, which are sadly interrelated. However, as the show is completely listener-supported, you are the boss. That means we have to get your approval, your permission, for any schedule change that would allow for a four-day work week and a three relaxing three-day weekend, and hopefully, for me, better physical and mental health. So we posted a question for Patreon patrons, and that is, would you continue to support This Is Hell? On Patreon, if the show went from three 80-minute episodes per week, plus the Patreon podcast, to two 90-minute shows, 
and not only continuing the Patreon podcast, but also providing more hellish content on Patreon and across social media. As that is exactly what we are doing this week, airing two 90-minute shows and filling our four-hour shows with a classic interview from our past, we will be sharing with you, following our interview with Lisa Covington, exactly how our Patreon patrons responded to that question, if they would continue to support This Is Hell on Patreon if we cut back to two 90-minute shows and expanded our Patreon coverage. We'll share all of that with you coming up. Also coming up on the show, the gutting of universities in the United States. We will have this week in Rotten History. Will will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Historian Dr. Sebastian Vupper has a new past inside the present when Sebastian provides the historical context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Will, what is Seb talking about this week? Seb starts a series exploring the century of humiliation which is what the Chinese sometimes call the the 19th century. (laughs) Learn about the Opium Wars this week. Sweet. I'm looking forward to that. I learned about that in a basic history class on uh, China, and I think the text that we used was by Jonathan Spence. I think it's called The Making of Modern China. It's a really great book from the early 90s. Check it out. Another end of the world is possible. We'll also be telling you what's happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's guest. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell and the end of the world that is possible for higher education in the United States and is threatening the present and future of the U.S. university is just another frightening possibility in our world of ongoing destructive neoliberalism, religiously putting profits before everything else, here to help us have a better understanding of the threat to higher education, Dr. Lisa M. Corrigan posted the Nation article, The Evisceration of a Public University. West Virginia University is being gutted, and it's a preview for what's in store for higher education. Welcome to This Is How, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. How are you feeling? I'm well, thank you, and I appreciate moving the interview. That's okay. Uh, Lisa had scheduled for us uh, with us a couple weeks ago, and as we all know, the pandemic is over, and somehow... Lisa proved that to not be the case. That's how amazing of a person she is. She actually caught COVID. So how bad was it? Not bad at all, actually. I was relieved, quite frankly. Had you had it before? I had, and I think it. it this was either I had immunity from the vaccines plus an infection, or I just got a mild strain, but um, it was unpleasant, but not as bad as it had been. Because I've been talking to a lot of people, family out in California, people I know out in New York City, a lot of people have been catching this new variant, and so I just wanted to get your experience. And basically all of them have told me they were vaccinated in the past. It wasn't as bad as the last time, but it still, it was not pleasant. No, and I think the absence of any public health measures is probably making it worse. (laughs) And that's my bet, too. So you write about uh, the Friday, August 11th announcement by West Virginia University on the school's plan to raise some of its core programs, raise as an R-A-Z-E, like destroy them. As you explain, the public land grant university intends to eliminate 9% of its majors, 32 programs total, all of its foreign language programs, and 16% of its full-time faculty members. As the AP reported, this is due to, and you point out in your article, this is due to a $45 million budget shortfall at West Virginia University. So what's the cause for that shortfall? Was this incompetency of university leadership or something else that is undermining WVU's bottom line? Well, when WVU's president was named in 2014, W. Uh, Gordon Gee, 
He promised to increase enrollment at WVU to 40,000 students by the year 2020, but that never materialized. And instead, the WVU enrollment has dropped somewhere between 7 and 10% since 2015, while he continued massive on-campus expansion. So the numbers actually have been changing since the Nation article came out, and some internal documents have become public that suggest that the $45 million in cuts are actually closer to $21 million because of some creative accounting. So it seems that Guy had decided to massively expand public works projects on campus buildings in particular, and is using the shortfall as an excuse to cut faculty, even though he's cutting programs that are by all measures profitable for the university and popular with both students and community members who have long supported them, including math and statistics, English, including the creative language program, or I mean the creative writing program, all of the foreign languages, their ceramics program. And so it really is uh, an, ab an abrupt turn for WVU that seems to be uh, motivated mostly by ideology and not actually financial concerns. So you write, WVU is currently facing a $45 million budget gap and is seemingly uninterested in shrinking administrator salaries, creating artificial conditions for austerity. Mm-hmm. How rich are administrators getting off the cutting of teachers and curriculum? Is there a new kind of culture within universities across the nation that administrators are getting paid excessive, you know, increasingly excessive amounts of money while programs are being cut? I mean, Guy himself was given a three-year contract extension through 2024 at a salary of about $800,000 a year. So really, today's administrators at public land-grant research universities are making money like their CEOs of corporations, and it's unwarranted, right, especially because they also have golden parachutes if they decide to leave early or take another job. And that money is coming out of public funds, right, because they're public employees, state employees. So it is mirroring the situation that we're seeing in, you know, the private corporations where these administrators are coming in demanding massive salaries, bloating, right, university costs, and then starving out their, their, um, departments. And it's it's particularly tricky with liberal arts because the ma majority of students who come into a public research one land-grant university like WVU, they come in usually as undecided or as liberal arts majors. And so they are actually driving most of the tuition gains on public university campuses. And subsequently, they're subsidizing the salaries all the way up the ladder. So they're subsidizing the salaries of like, let's say, you know, their law schools or their business schools or their med schools. And then all that money is actually then being hoarded at the top for administrator salaries. So it's really a pillaging of the public goods coming off of the backs of the liberal arts programs, which are producing the mass majority of student semester credit hours at the majority of land grants across the country. So why are any of these cuts necessary when West Virginia University, as of 2022, had an endowment of $875 million. Now, I have to admit, I don't really understand the massive endowments that universities have around the country, but how can they have a budget shortfall of $45 million when they're sitting on nearly 20 times that much in their endowment? Uh, they don't. I mean, they just simply don't. It's abs. It's not. It's not. It's just not true. And the problem is, is the public doesn't really understand how the accounting works at uh, higher ed, you know, institutions. And so the oversight on that spending 
and the accounting of it is minimal. And I think it's even worse in a place like West Virginia, where the oversight on the university is minimal because of the support for GI. Some of that is how, you know, university chancellors and presidents are chosen by the boards of regents or boards of trustees in their states. And it's sort of like, um, you know, an, an oligarchy, right? They get tapped for a long period of time, and they're just sort of siphoning money out of the public good, where there's not a whole lot of oversight, because it's not like there's an advise and consent role for faculty senates. This is not a democratic process to choose a university president. Like there is no weighing in of the faculty or the students when these mostly men get appointed to these positions. So I think it's it's irreconcilable to both say that there's a deficit, whether you use the $45 million uh, number that the WVU president's office is supplying or the 21 million number that seems to be more likely, even if it were the case that they had no endowment, that's still a small amount of money and the state could easily bail out the university. But that's not the way it's going. And so it, it seems very clear to anybody who studies or works in higher education that the cuts are really um, being justified through this flimsy excuse of a budget shortfall when really it's an ideological axe to grind against you know the liberal arts. And in fact, Guy himself identified what he called um, a, a change in how the public university is perceived. He called it uh, a, a shift in academic transformation amid, quote, an existential crisis in higher ed and characterized the situation in WVU as one where the university has, quote, lost the support and trust of the American public. But of course, there's no evidence for that. WVU is wildly popular among students and alumni. Their donations are off the off the charts, as you, as you noted. Their endowment is massive. And so it really is just, an, I think, an opportunity to pillage the money from this giant public fund and divest it into private corporations, including private contractors, um, private advisors and advising groups and um, tech. And, and, and it creates a pipeline for tech people who've been laid off uh, since the pandemic to come into the into the public universities and really frack out a bunch of money. So how far do you think would introducing democracy into the process of hiring university presidents, or just in general, how far do you think introducing democracy within the public university system across the United States would go in protecting the public universities from any kind of profiteering by outside sources? Well, I do think that there should be advice and consent, not just for the appointment of presidents and their uh, cabinets, but also for the hiring of lucrative contractor firms that come in like the RPK group, which WVU and other universities have hired to sort of be the hatchet man for the cuts that they want to plan against the liberal arts. I also think really that higher ed is undergoing a shift, right? In part because of the pandemic, but WVU is in a unique position because its enrollment has dropped slightly, whereas a lot of other R1 universities, mine, the University of Arkansas included, we are bursting at the steams with students. We're drowning in students and we don't have enough faculty to cover them. So I think that it's, I think some of the solutions to this kind of privatization of higher education could really be addressed with federal legislation, in part because there was a massive decrease in federal funding for higher education education, public higher education in 07-08 at the end of the Bush administration. And some of the universities got cut as much as 50%. So they had to make up, you know, that money, that funding. And a lot of them turned to private sources and started, you know, chasing um, private 
donors like the Ivy Leagues to try and build their endowments up. But that just gave, you know, private individuals more control over the public good, which is probably not great. So I would like to see a combination of things. I would like to see salary caps on presidents and chancellors salaries. I would like to see uh, democratic decision making at the appointment of the chancellor or president. I would like to see better oversight and and um, at the state level. And I would like to see a restoration and expansion of federal funding for public higher education, because it's really the only bulwark against fascism in the United States. And we have been struggling to find ways to make up the deficit, given how many more students are enrolling in public higher education now compared to 0708. Why the desire to grow endowments? And again, I apologize for my lack of understanding of endowments, but why is there uh, this desire by people like at Harvard or West Virginia University to grow your endowments? Because as you were pointing out, and, and have and have this uh, focus on uh, expanding the enrollment and then cutting the teachers. So what what's the point of uh, the de- the desire of expanding your endowment? Well, the endowments are private. Once you get an endowment, you can spend that money on anything. But public funds are restricted, right, because they have state oversight. So, for example, if I wanted to spend money on a speaker that I brought to campus, I would not be able to spend money on, say, alcohol for that speaker because it's state funds. I would have to use endowment funds, which are unrestricted funds. So in some ways, like the endowment functions as a block grant. I don't know how much you know about like how federal funding works, but block grants are like, here's $50 million. You have to spend it on, you know, public goods. It could be public transportation. It could be public safety. It could be public health, but the states get to decide. In the same way, endowments function to create unrestricted funds where the university can spend it on whatever they want, including giant salaries for administrators, right? So the administrators are the only ones who can touch those funds unless they're designated to a particular program or unit. If they're not, then that's where all the money is coming from to bloat these administrator salaries. So in some ways, the intent to produce large endowments is really a wealth hoarding thing. It's the same thing that CEOs are doing in corporations across the country. Uh, so one of the things that you write is also that 50 years of cuts to higher education have accounted for losses of between 30 to 50 percent of funding for some land-grant schools. That being the case, how has West Virginia University and other universities, how, how are they doing? Uh, what are they doing during this time while they're accumulating massive endowments? What are they doing with that money if they're not using it to, you know, reinforce their curriculum? Oh, I mean, none of these decisions are curricular. So full stop, none of them, whether it's WVU or the University of Utah or the University of Alaska and other places where these cuts are happening, none of the decisions are being made based on curricular design at all, full stop. So the money is coming from private donors, right, who are then directing the the programming for the universities. So the, a university like WVU finds a mega donor who, let's say, wants to expand coal mining, right? And then they're like, okay, we're going to cut creative writing and we're going to put a bunch of money into expanding coal because it's a coal state. So in some ways, it's the transformation that's happening at WVU and in other public institutions is one that's transforming the public good into a private good that's that's really funneling uh, talent and attention towards whatever the billionaires who are donating want. So it's a, it, in some ways, it's useful to see what's happening at WVU as a corporate takeover. 
right, of public education. It's the same thing that's happening in K through 12, right, where the privatizers are using vouchers to skim public money and put it into the hands of private religious schools and homeschoolers. It's the same sort of scam. Do you think this scam has bipartisan support? That's a good question. I think on the whole, it's being driven by ideologues inside of the GOP. That's really where the voucher scheme has happened. But, you know, the support, especially through for K through 12 privatization, enjoyed tremendous support under Obama and also Clinton. So I think that um, it's slightly more complicated in WVU because it depends on how you slice and dice Manchin and like whether you actually see him as a Democrat or not. But I think that on the whole, privatization as a scheme, especially for K through 12, has enjoyed support, certainly in the DOE, for, uh, from both sides of the aisle. You also point out that the departments targeted uh, for these massive uh, cuts count Truman, Marshall, Fulbright, and Rhodes Scholars among their alumni. So were these the departments that were the most cost inefficient? I went to uh, I went to undergraduate. I got two degrees in liberal arts. When the when I was going to school, they were always called degrees in unemployment. Are, are these uh, are these groups like our RPK group just making the tough decisions that students should be making about their future and how financially successful they will be? Is it were these the departments that were the most cost inefficient and would be the less least monetarily rewarding moving uh, forward in students' lives? No. Full stop. So the math program, for example, like Guy is all talking about all these STEM programs that will expand after the cuts, but you can't expand STEM without math. So this is what I'm saying. There's no curricular justification for the cuts. These are programs that are producing dollars. They're not losing money. They scaffold a lot of other majors and programs, and they're beloved. So, for example, I think that the attack on foreign languages is worth noting here because a lot of these conservative consultant hatchet groups are coming in to cut foreign languages, which really puts rural students in a state like West Virginia at the only research institution in the state at a disadvantage because if they don't have access to foreign languages, that means they can't go into international business or international law or international finance. They're cut out of whole streams of the market. And it creates a two-tier educational system where the students who do not have access to a, a robust math program or foreign languages or, say, creative writing have no way of breaking into a market that's being really taken over and um, occupied by the private uh, schools and the Ivies. The other problem is, is the Ivy Leagues are tiny. They do not serve the vast majority of students in the United States, whereas the giant land grant public universities do. So if the publics fail, that means that the rural students, which are most of the students in America, are not going to have access to an equal educational opportunity that they have had previously. And that, I think, is a huge danger for rural states like West Virginia, which is very similar to my state in Arkansas. If you erode the public land grant universities, a giant swath of the number of students who are going into public higher ed no longer have a competitive you know playing field with students who are going to the ivies and right now they sort of do they have access to a lot of similar opportunities because there's so many more of them in the publics than in the privates so why all of the attention from the biden administration and past administrations as well focusing on getting people free community college funding the funding for uh, kind of for trade schools why is the focus on those instead of Putting those resources back into the uh, or, you know, changing rules or regulations it back into the university system to save the public university. 
Listen, I support community college wholeheartedly. That is a great option for a lot of students. It's a great option for low-income students. It's a great opportunity for a lot of students who are transitioning into higher ed from situations where they don't necessarily have the same financial advantages as the folks who are going to the Ivies or to the big publics. So I support the expansion of that funding. I think I can't speak for Biden personally, but his public comments obviously suggest that his interest in community college stem from his, his wife, First Lady Jill Biden's employment at the community colleges throughout his career. So in some ways, I think for the Bidens, that's personal. I think the community colleges themselves have been underfunded. I think that they are going to see a major boom, especially as the economy shifts and transforms in the next five years. Uh, and so they're anticipating a crush of students who maybe have been cut out of higher education because of its expensiveness going into community colleges for a whole host of reasons. Some of them will transfer into public R1s. Some of them will get associate's degrees. Some will get technical degrees. Some will get votech degrees. All of that is important. And also all of this conversation would be totally unnecessary if public education was fully funded by the federal government. We wouldn't have to have this conversation about whether it's zero sum between community college and public R1s. So is this decision to cut these programs in at West Virginia University, is that financially good in the short run, but disastrous for the school in the long run. Will these cuts lead to short-term bottom-line success that people like the RPK group will be able, and uh, Guy as well, they'll be able to both point towards their decisions being the right decisions to make? No, because it's not like the cuts are happening in a vacuum, right? So Guy has also announced, and he has started construction projects in recent years, including a $100 million new home for the business school at WVU, a $35 million renovation of a classroom building, $41 million for two phases of upgrades to the football team's building. There's massive spending happening that is wildly larger than the cuts that either Guy cites or the faculty can point to as the actual bottom line at WVU. So he's spending more than it's going to cover the deficit. There, there, it's it's a completely transparent sort of situation to anybody on the ground, you know, in West Virginia, that the spending will continue unabated and that the cuts are really, you know, ideologically driven and not about the material concerns of WBU, either from an enrollment perspective or from a revenue perspective. So I think it's it's disingenuous for Guy to suggest that somehow these cuts are going to make up the deficit and then suddenly there will be a balanced budget at WVU. That's simply not true, given how much spending is already planned and is already taking place. On that ideological note, you are in January 2022, uh, RPK Group, after a review of SUNY Lake uh, Erie, determined the school needed to make cuts to its faculty and staff. A month later, they made a recommendation to Wichita State to cut 42 programs, but that number eventually dropped to 16 earlier this year in February 2023, as those departments would face a monitor and review session. Uh, the RPK group also works with the universities of Missouri, Kansas, and Virginia, among other schools. It seems like RPK group's solution to any funding in, uh, issue at any university is to cut curriculum and teachers. Is RPK group predisposed to only thinking about cutting curriculum and teachers, and is that why uh, Guy brought them into the West Virginia University? Yes, but they're not alone. They're joined with McKinsey and other consultant groups who are brought in to be the hatchet men to provide justification after the fact for what are ideological cuts to higher ed. I will say that 
one of the major consequences of this that I think goes maybe unnoticed in the reportage of the WVU situation is that when the consultants come in and, and they recommend cuts to the faculty, they're never, ever recommending cuts to administrator salaries and they are or fringe and they are also fundamentally undermining tenure so especially in states like wvu or arkansas where i live that are right to work states where unions are pretty much prohibited there is minimal faculty protection for free speech but tenure helps guarantee that people can stay they can move to these cities that have universities and they can stay and build a life there there are not like endless university jobs so if you go to a university like wvu you commit to stay there for a long time the only way that you can retain people to come and live in small rural states is through the protection of tenure. So one thing that's happening with RPK and McKinsey when they come into universities is that they are fundamentally eroding tenure, which erodes the First Amendment for all of us. It helps fuel the culture war against woke and against public libraries. And it produces these you know, macabre situations that target teachers in a moment where we really need public education to reinvigorate democracy. It is worth noting, however, that there are universities that have employed RPK Group and McKinsey that have not employed the suggestions that they have given to the university in terms of cutting faculty and staff. And, you know, some of the universities on your list there, including the University of Kansas, have declined to employ um, the suggestions of, say, RPK group. So there is pushback in higher ed, I think, especially among the faculty who understand how predatory the consultants are to not use them as a way of eviscerating either free speech or the public university as a research institution and as a bulwark against democracy. The stated mission, as you point out in your writing at The Nation, the stated mission at West Virginia University is to create a diverse, inclusive culture that advances education, health care, and prosperity for all by providing access and opportunity. Is that why the school is making these cuts? Is this blowback against the very mission of the school to create a diverse and inclusive culture that advances education, healthcare, and prosperity for all by providing access and opportunity? Are the programs targeted those that advance inclusion and diversity? Yes, I think we can see the chaos at the new College of Florida as part of the same phenomenon, which is what happens when the right wing culture vultures seize on education as the place where they want to remake um, America into this America first white nationalist space. So the war on foreign languages, for example, or denying rural students access to a robust math program are part of breaking down the public goods that are fundamental to democracy. So this is, you know, the thing that is happening at WVU is remarkable because it is the only R1 land grant in its entire state. The PR has been so bad for Guy because he has not handled any uh, any kind of scrutiny into both the spending or the cuts well. Um, and it it appears thoughtless, reckless, and selfish. But also it's part of a much larger phenomenon that's happening right now. In some ways, it reminds me of 1954 with Brown v. Board, right? Public education was the space for the early civil rights movement because if you cannot send you know, disenfranchised people into public education, there's no way for them to access democratic rights. So it makes sense that Brown versus Board in 54 and then Brown versus Board in 56 were the terrain of early civil rights agitation 
information. That's obviously my area of expertise. And so in some ways, this moment that we're living through right now is a return to the politics of 54, where there are, you know, obviously ideological groups, including most of the GOP that want to return us to a pre-1954 world where public education was not public, it was segregated, and where not everyone had access to the intellectual and cultural tools that gave them, you know, the ability to participate fully in a democratic government. We are speaking with Dr. Lisa M. Corrigan, who posted the Nation article, The Evisceration of a Public University. West Virginia University is being gutted, and it's a preview for what's in store for higher education. She's the author, most recently, of Black Feelings, Race, and Affect in the Long 60s, and also the author of Prison Power, How Prison Influenced the Movement for Black Liberation. Follow Lisa at drlisacorrigan on twitter.com. And check out her podcast, which she co-hosts, Lean Back. You can find that at Lean Back Podcast on Twitter.com. And you can just go to their website, leanbackpodcast.com. You write of West Virginia University like other land-grant universities. It was created by the Morrill Act in 1862, which allocated land and financial support from the federal government to help reshape education in response to the Industrial Revolution. Land-grant institutions were charged with educating rural students across the country outside of the elite private universities, which were driven by tuition and legacy admissions. Is that where decisions like those of WVU, informed by our PK group, are taking us back to? A time when universities were elite, private, and driven by tuition and legacy admissions. Are we going back to a time of college education for the few and not the many? Well, I certainly think that there are those like Guy who would like to push us there, but I do remain optimistic that there is enough attention and resistance to this maneuver to try and take over public education and kill inclusive critical thinking that it can be thwarted, particularly in other places around the country. I'm very heartened by the union organizing and the pushback by WVU faculty, who, of course, are being monitored by the president's office for their online advocacy for programs that are facing cuts. Uh, Just last week, several programs had to go and defend their status in front of a secret tribunal at WVU. And I have to say that Um, We should be lifting up faculty and staff at WVU and other land grants, University of, you know, uh, Nevada, University of Alaska, who are seeing this kind of privatizing. um, And and we should hold them close and support their programming because it's essential for democracy and it's essential for the the rural states who desperately need and want uh, robust, healthy public research institutions. You're right that today, like many land-grant universities, West Virginia University sits at the convergence of several cultural and economic tectonic shifts that are working in tandem to radically transform education. Foremost among these shifts is the changing economic climate of higher ed. First, how aware do you think the public is here in the United States that of, of what you call a tectonic shift taking place in higher education that will, as you argue, radically tra- transform the university? How aware do you think the public is that a radical transformation is happening, even amongst parents of students who are just going to the university? Well, if WVU is the case study, I think they're more aware than they have been. So it's been wonderful to see local communities in Morgantown and around the state putting up signs in front of their businesses, supporting faculty at WVU because they understand the massive financial impact of cutting liberal arts in the cities and states where this kind of transformation is happening. There will be a devastating financial impact on local communities if the cuts to the liberal arts 
are sustained there and elsewhere. So I do think that, you know, local communities understand that it's been interesting to see alumni um, try and rally to stop their own donations to WVU in protest. You know, people who have attended WVU, who have thrived in the liberal arts programs that are targeted for cuts, who've become massively successful and who want to give back. And they are really chafing at this kind of destruction to the liberal arts. So I do think that awareness is increasing uh, steadily. And I think more and more people are understanding the relationship between the privatization of K through 12 through voucher schemes uh, and the privatization of higher ed as real threats to our democratic way of governance. Um, I would like to see more people showing up in person to support faculty, staff, and students. And I I think you're going to see a bunch of changes in terms of where students want to go um, for their their higher education as a result of the deprioritization of their own needs and their programs. I really feel for the students who were recruited to WVU under what I think is a bait and switch scheme where they were promised a robust foreign language program or a BA in a particular language or a math program or creative writing or ceramics where they got there and now the entire program is gutted. I mean, there's all of these students that are going to be stranded as they destroy the entire liberal arts college. And that is, I think, grossly unethical. And I hope, you know, people are paying attention to that because it will affect them at some point. Well, so let's just stick on that point for a second. What does this mean, say, for high school students today who may be considering going to a university when they graduate from high school in the next year or so? How will the university they will be entering be different from the university their parents experienced and understand? Oh, I think I think it's going to be a, a tremendous difference. And I think if I were a parent of an incoming student to a public university, I would be at orientation, you know, asking these difficult questions about where the direction is. In some ways, it's very disingenuous for Guy to say, you know, that the public has lost faith in higher education, especially when he's spending like a madman and, you know, and producing um, fake numbers about the university's profits. I think that for a lot of people who are looking at the investment into their children's future, which is a significant financial commitment, they need to be thinking about who can be trusted. And it is not the people who are trying to privatize higher education. It's not the people who are cutting the liberal arts. It is a bait and switch. And so they should be thinking about where to put those really valuable higher education dollars to work. I just don't think that the return on investment is going to happen under the leadership of Guy or other men like him who get passed around from scandal to scandal. This is not his first rodeo. He was fired from Ohio State twice, Brown University, Vanderbilt, under huge scandals about his tremendous spending habits, among other things. And so it's not like we can't track the people who are terrible fiscal stewards of higher education. Their track record is in public. It just takes a Google search to find out where the bodies are buried. You also point out that West Virginia University, like many higher education institutions, has been plagued by gross financial mismanagement by administrators and consultants who have funneled money into massive administrative bloat and capital projects at the expense of faculty hires and support for faculty and graduate students, as you were pointing out earlier. Why has this happened in such a widespread manner? Did something change structurally, possibly defunding by the local, state, and federal governments, leading universities to being desperate for resources and or new rules and regulations that allowed universities to make more risky financial settlement uh, investments? Has there been a, a structural realignment in how universities are funded at the state and public level? 
and how they can fund themselves through risky investments in the private sector. Was there a structural change that happened that was kind of imposed on universities? Oh, for sure. I mean, the divestment in higher education during the Bush administration, which of course coincided with Leave No Child Behind, which was a massive divestment from public schools, um, created some of the impetus for this. Although in some ways it's older, it's as, it's older as Reagan's, you know, war on Pell Grants and on the Department of Education. So the hostility and anti-intellectualism of American politics is not a new story. I think what is really different from the Bush administration to today is um, a real conservative push towards white supremacy that is pushing for programming that excludes, you know, critical thinking skills of all kinds. So the war on woke, quote unquote, that DeSantis continues to harp about is really the way that the right is framing what is fundamentally an anti-intellectual crusade to capture higher education and use it as a tool of propaganda. So I, I do think that the shift has been longer than just, you know, the period since 07 to today. It is part of the rights architecture of politics that sees free speech in particular as anathema to their control of the public sphere. But I do think that it is backfiring. And I think that the deep structural conservatism of the current GOP and its financial corruption, as we're seeing, you know, unfold certainly in some of the Trump documentation is really blowing back and is doing damage not just to the GOP brand and its bench, its political bench, but also to Americans' uh, perception of the GOP as a financial steward. So I I do think that this is a different moment than similar, you know, the, than the trajectory has produced historically. I think it's significant in that way, and I think the call now, the urgency is to really see public education as a public good that must be expanded and preserved for democracy. And you also mentioned that the book bans, censorship, purges of area studies programs, and targeting of academics at public universities, particularly in the South, are all calculated to decrease the public's confidence in public education so that it can be dismantled and replaced with private corporations, which lack regulation and oversight. But the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment requires that when a state establishes a public school system, no child living in that state may be denied equal access to schooling. Does that in any way? at all anymore guarantee a quality public education in the United States. No, I the GOP wholesale dismisses all of the reconstruction amendments. So I, n- no, I don't think that it does and I think especially with the GOP's capture of the federal judiciary the impulse is to deny claims based on uh, equal protection clause. So, you know, I think what you're seeing happen in the Supreme Court is this like historical questions doctrine which is obviously fabricated. And it is designed to roll back the effects of, you know, equal protection. So the affirmative action decision that was just issued in the spring is part and parcel of a longer war on equal opportunity and equal access that is where the GOP sees its stake in politics going. So public education is facing funding cuts. High-paid administrators are protecting their salaries while letting teachers go and cutting the number of programs offered. They, they're they being targeted in right-wing culture wars. The pandemic led even more educators to leave the field, and state funding is now being uh, put into work products for the homeschooled. 
So by your estima uh, estimation, how at risk is public education generally? And if it is at risk, is it going to be a campaign issue for the presidency in 2024? I think it's a huge issue. There's no doubt that the Biden administration understands it. And honestly, I think that the student loan forgiveness is part of a wealth transfer back to borrowers who sought student loans as a way to expand their educational opportunities in the face of these exploding costs driven by bloated administration salaries uh, inside of the public university. So there's no doubt that the Biden administration understands the stakes and is working hard to ameliorate it because they understand that the evisceration of WVU and other public land grant universities is a wealth transfer. It is taking public tax money that was designed for the entire public, all of the public to use for higher education and and funneling it into private hands. So that is, you know, the privateers who want to come in and decide the future of programming at the public universities through their own, you know, gifts and donations and endowments. So I do think that the public sphere generally will be part of the electoral cycle. I would be surprised if Biden ran on it. I don't think he needs to, uh, quite frankly. But I do think that if and when he wins a second term, we will see educational reform happen potentially in higher ed. But I, I think it's very heartening to see the massive labor that his administration has put into student loan forgiveness as part of the push of his administration, not just because it's ethical and the right things to do, but also because it is bringing youth voters into the Democratic Party in such numbers that make them, you know, um, a target for the GOP. So in some ways, it's worth seeing that a war on higher education from the GOP and this war on woke as a way of undermining the political efficacy of young people who are college-aged voters because they do not tend to vote for the GOP because they don't agree with the war on public goods. So I do think we'll see movement in a second Biden administration that's going to be more overtly, overtly pro-public education. I would be very surprised if it became a campaign issue for him, though. You write this moment is also seeing tremendous technological modernization as education scrambles to respond to advances in artificial intelligence. It's telling that as West Virginia University announces these devastating cuts, Johns Hopkins University, a private R1 university in Baltimore, is making 80 tenure-track hires in AI. You say that's telling. What does that tell you about the current state of the public university relative to those that are private? Are private universities like Johns Hopkins invulnerable to the kind of thing that is happening at West Virginia? Yes, they are invulnerable because their endowments are bigger. They don't have to they don't have to adhere to state spending rules and they attract large donors and serve a smaller student body. So they are going to be inoculated from massive changes in student body composition in the same way that the Ivies will. They're just not serving as many students. I will say though that the AI push is very concerning in one sense because the goal is to move the tech you know, financiers into higher ed as a way of safeguarding their jobs to produce, you know, AI generated content. But it's the same fight that SAG after folks in LA are fighting over their residuals and over the exploitation of their labor and undercompensation of their labor inside of the arts. So the connection between higher education and the union battle inside of the Hollywood creatives is almost identical, I would say, except that, you know, SAG after is obviously this massive historical union 
union that has tremendous negotiating and bargaining power, and higher ed exists in right-to-work states where a lot of the faculty do not have the luxury of union representation and a bargaining table with which to resist. So I think that it's worthwhile to read what's happening at WVU and other R1 land grants as the labor struggle and the labor terrain for education uh, moving further into the 21st century. As the Charlton, what, Charleston, sorry, Charleston, West Virginia Gazette Mail reported, the new institute for cybersecurity, that's Virginia University, pizza one, Husan's pizza once, Husan's pizza once stood, Husan's pizza once stood, Husan's pizza once stood, will be about 78,000 square feet and will have 13 labs. Among them will be six cybersecurity labs for training purposes, an industrial control systems lab, an Internet of Things lab, and an open source lab. Demolition on the site has already begun, but as West Virginia News reported, West Virginia, uh, they reported that Governor Jim Justice has proposed a bill directing $45 million towards the construction of the center. Tony Stoud, the vice president of strategic initiatives at Marshall University, stated that the U.S. Department of Defense is supporting the project. He expressed Marshall's aim to relocate the success of the University of Texas at San Antonio's Cybersecurity Center and become the East Coast hub. Is Pentagon-funded cybersecurity a sign of things to come for universities? Now, I understand that the Pentagon and Department of Defense have always done some funding at universities for research, but if they are, what does that sign say to you? What happens when universities desperate for funding increase their already existing and expanding dependence and educating and training to benefit the military. I mean, basically, Marshall University is going to become a cop city, just like Atlanta. So the poor students who are in poor states who can't afford the liberal arts education at the private schools or at the R1s in blue states are going to be funneled into security. And it's going to build the security and surveillance apparatus of the United States. And they're going to end up being, you know, pro forma AI cops. You know, and and it's the design goal. So it's not like this is speculation on my part. It's the way that the mission is written for the cybersecurity hires and institutes that is telling. They're not hiding it. It's not like some secret mission. The goal is to funnel that DOD money and capture public universities so that the defense industry can make money. I went to the University of Maryland for my graduate work and was there during the Bush administration for both the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. And I watched how much money went to private contractors who were doing military work. And D.C. and its suburbs experienced this massive boom. It artificially changed the, you know, the housing market. It gentrified whole parts of Maryland and Virginia in the suburbs. It transformed the economy there and ushered in a huge number of defense contractors to live and work there that basically funneled money into their private and public, you know, um, opportunities. And so I think the same thing will happen at Hopkins in Baltimore. It will happen at Marshall. And it's going to happen as, you know, the defense industry captures public goods and uses them and to transform them into their own, you know, economy. You also mentioned that it's not just RPK group. It's also it's also groups like McKinsey where Pete Buttigieg is from. Why do you think McKinsey has such a kind of positive uh, appearance, at least, within the media? Why do you think the media supports McKinsey? And when they said, you know, Pete Buttigieg, he worked for McKinsey, that that was like something that was a good thing. Why do you think places like McKinsey, that are all they're doing is just going in and working almost like private equity and stripping down uh, education, why do you think they have such a the media has such a positive feeling towards them. 
Well, I mean, I think the book When McKinsey Comes to Town by Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth really tackles this. Um, you know, they're the real experts on McKinsey in particular. I don't know that the public has a favorable position about McKinsey. I think that the public really doesn't understand how consultancies work or how lucrative they are. But McKinsey and other groups like it, including RPK, are really just holding spaces to funnel money into politicos and decision makers before they go back into the public sphere. And so I, I don't think the public has any attentiveness towards consultancies generally at all, quite frankly. You also point out that students at state schools will receive the education that the oligarchs want them to based on their largesse. So what will the rest of us be taught to do in this stratified society? What roles will those that are not elite play? What are we going to do? Well, it's interesting because I think some of that depends on what our immigration policies are. Some of the, you know, culture uh, war about woke is deeply interested in punishing and harming immigrants as a way of managing anxiety about labor. But I mean, we wouldn't have food in the United States if immigrants were not doing a bunch of the food labor, especially in California. And uh, so I think that in, in part, the shift will come as a eugenic shift that's anti-immigrant, anti-Black and Brown. It always has. And I think that people are not prepared for the way that supply chains will change and the way that we will receive goods and services. So if you are not one of the chosen, the lucky who get to go to a private Ivy or you know a blue land grant school, the options are going to be limited, and it's going to be mostly you know um, low wage day labor work, right? That has a veneer of legitimacy because it's being funded by the defense department or you know private contractor industries that are related to it so i think that we really are in in danger of creating this two-tier system that's even worse than the current stratification of public education if the consultants are allowed to make the decisions about the future of higher education you're writing your work was cited in a letter to the editor in the sunday new york times by leaf weathersby an associate professor of german and the director of the digital theater lab at new york university Weathersby writes that if you're a West Virginian with plans to attend West Virginia University, be prepared to find yourself cut out of much of the best education that the school has traditionally offered and many of the most basic parts of the education offered by comparable universities. Sadly, this is not just a local story. Politicians and state officials, often with the help of management consultants, are making liberal arts education scarce in some of the poorest states in the union. This trend typically led by Republican-controlled legislatures and often masquerading as budgetary necessity threatens to have dire long-term effects on our already polarized and divided nation. Do you believe this purposely targets the poor while fueling them with feelings of polarization through culture wars? Is the right underserving the poor and then exploiting that feeling of deprivation and victimization in order to provoke the financially vulnerable with hate-filled culture war polarization? Is this all a very calculated political manipulation by the right? Yes, but it's not just the poor, it's also what's left of the middle class. 
I think it's worth seeing this moment, you know, and the neoliberalization of higher education is a massive wealth transfer, right, from the bottom to the top. And I think that we can we we know that because in states like West Virginia or in my state in Arkansas, we're seeing the destruction of public goods accompanied by massive tax cuts, even when there is tremendous tax revenue and surplus in our states. So the states have the money to fund, fully fund public goods, public education, public health initiatives, roads, and services, but they're choosing to funnel that money back to the wealthiest, the top 1% of our states. And so the poorest states and the smallest states are most in danger of this corporate takeover that really is, is, is going to destroy access to higher education for not just the poor, but also what's left the middle class. And so it's really going to be a stratification of higher education that will cut almost everybody else out. So is this the one thing that I was really fearing? I've just got two more questions for you. One thing I'm really fearing is when the United States does apply these kind of uh, neoliberal practices, they often export them. And then we start seeing the privatization of Britain's healthcare system. Is the United States exporting this kind of neoliberal education model? Oh, I don't know that it's exportation so much so much as it is a collaboration. Like the Brit, the British higher education system is going through the same thing. <laughs> it's massive layoffs. It's destruction of tenure. It's it's exactly the same. So I don't know that we're exporting it so much as mimicking it, right? Like it's not like Reagan and Thatcher weren't collaborating. It's not like the U.S. only exports and it's one way. I think that <clears throat> in general, the quote unquote West you know, uses colonization as its way of expropriating resources. And this is just one new casualty. But I don't think it's unidirectional at all. I do think, however, that you're going to see the decline of British education in the same way. And you're going to see the expansion of state-supported higher education in the rest of the EU, especially Germany and others, and, and certainly the Nordic countries where they are just crushing the US and UK on every major metric, you know, in terms of success, student success, student happiness, wages, return on investment. And so we're really doing massive damage to the economic security of the country by eroding this kind of public education opportunity for poor and middle-class students, especially in smaller states that, that are targets of this kind of takeover. One last question for you, Lisa. We've been speaking with Dr. Lisa M. Corrigan, who posted the Nation article, The Evisceration of a Public University. She's the author most recently of Black Feelings, Race, and Affect in the Long 60s. And she previously wrote Prison Power, How Prison Influenced the Movement for Black Liberation. You can find out more about uh, Lisa at drlisacorrigan on twitter.com. And you can find out more about the podcast that she works on, Lean Back, at leanbackpodcast.com. One last question for you, Lisa, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question you may hate to, or we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is just going to hate your response or the fact that I even asked the question. So why does the right perceive the study of liberal arts as leftist. What is it about the liberal arts that offends them so much? And why do they, if they see it as such a leftist thing, why do they only want it taught in private, more elite universities? Um, they see it as leftist because we encourage critical thinking and open thinking. 
which is the opposite of the propaganda model that they prefer. So I think that we're going to see more of this, you know, capture of public goods as a way of, you know, taking over those goods and producing a more authoritarian outcome. I mean, if you look at the electoral cycles, they're not winning, right? The GOP is not winning on the issues. They're not winning the popular votes. If they're not controlling the elections or controlling their outcomes, right, through disenfranchisement, they can't win. The ideas aren't good enough and they don't really make any attempt to govern. So I think for all of us who are deeply invested in public education, we see critical thinking as an important part of a, a healthy functioning democracy. You know, the academics and professors that I run with, we laugh about the characterization that the students are all leftists or the professors are, or that we're indoctrinating them. Like I can't even get my students to read all the way through the syllabus. So I'd be happy if they could just like follow the directions for submission dates. But that characterization is a legacy really of the Reagan administration. And it just becomes a convenient lightning rod for them to privatize and frack out the money. So I'm sorry to say, you know, that that characterization continues to have legs, but it just allows the right to scapegoat higher education as a way of trying to take it over and frack all the money out of it for their cronies. Lisa, this has been so enjoyable having you on the show today, starting off our week after Labor Day weekend. I really appreciate you being on when you have a new article coming out, when you have a new book coming out. Are you working on a book right now? I am. I'm finishing a book about FBI surveillance of the civil rights movement and the civil rights sex tapes. Well, make certain that you contact us or have your publisher contact us to uh, when you have that book come up because we would love to have you back on the show. I would love to be back. Thank you for the invitation. It's been delightful. All right. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And this week's abyss is the emptiness of neoliberalism that's sucking us all down into its void where nothing exists, nothing thrives, but profits whose only purpose is to reproduce. If you learn something, it's almost like a bacteria, a virus, if you will. If you learn something from our conversation with Lisa and realized yet again, yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation for completely listener supported. This is hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week. And his podcast shortly after at Patreon dot com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and just clicking on that's right support by becoming a patreon member not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online and you get one of those every week you also get a secret code word that gives you a discount on all of our this is hell merchandise patreon patrons also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced on Patreon. And our newest feature every week, whoever is producing chooses a question from hell for me submitted by our Patreon subscribers, a question they have not yet heard until our producer asks it on the Patreon podcast. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon and only at Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Speaking of which, on our most recent Patreon podcast, it was all about profits. That is, what if something that is truly awful is still very profitable? Or even worse, what if the only solution to any problem that will be considered is one that is profitable, even if that money-making solution doesn't actually solve the problem to begin with? And what if we all led our lives that way, only doing whatever it is that makes us a buck and never taking any action that might actually force us to sacrifice for others? Unbelievably, 
There are a lot of libertarians out there who believe that if we all individually take care of ourselves, we will miraculously and suddenly be in some perfect profit-seeking harmony of peace. It's like that old John Maynard Keynes quote, capitalism is the extraordinary belief that the nastiest of men for the nastiest of motives will somehow work for the benefit of all. If the only motive will we have to addressing any situation, any problem, is profit, then we've been right for 27 years. This is hell. Also on Patreon, we're sharing, or we shared our uh, August 23rd, 2003 interview from just a little over 20 years ago last week with John Ross, author of the book The War Against Oblivion, Zapatista Chronicles, 1994 to 2000. John's counterpunch story, which had just been posted, was titled While Zapatistas Shout Gora Escudi, which means Go Basque Country, Vicente Fox's government rounds up Mexican Basques and ships them to Spanish Prime Minister Jose Maria Aznar's torture chambers. John's writing outlines the connection between the Zapatistas movement in Mexico and their counterpart at the time, the Basques of Spain. So, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. On the evening of September 4th, 1827, 196 years ago this week, in Turku, the oldest city in Finland, and at that time the largest, it's about 100 miles west of Helsinki, a few stray sparks from a chimney landed on the roof of a house and set it aflame. The fire quickly spread across the neighborhood and then to other neighborhoods, growing in intensity throughout the night. The flames finally managed to jump the Aura River, A-U-R-A, which runs through the center of the city. The fire killed 27 people, injured hundreds more, and eventually destroyed three quarters of the city, most of which would have to be rebuilt essentially from scratch. At this point, I was wondering, you know, that's horrible. That's obviously hellish. But where is Ronaldo going? He adds, along with other important buildings in the city center, the one housing Finland's national archives burned down. And most of its contents were irretrievably lost, including all its materials dating from the Middle Ages, which may explain why we don't know that much about the Middle Ages. Think of the Finnish National Archives fire in Turku of 1827 as a loss comparable to the knowledge lost of ancient civilizations when Caesar burned the library at Alexandria to the ground. Also in Rotten History, on September 6, 1952, 71 years ago this week, at the Farnborough Air Show in England, the de Havilland Aircraft Company was ready to show off its newest protege, a jet fighter called the DH-110 Sea Vixen. That's right, the Sea Vixen. Sounds like a boat. The pilot that day was 30-year-old war veteran John Derry reportedly the first British pilot to fly faster than the speed of sound without getting killed. Which means there were people who did break the speed of sound first who were successful but died, and we don't know any of their names. He was accompanied in the cockpit by flight engineer Anthony Richards. As 120,000 people watched in amazement, 120,000 people went to a freaking air show. As 120,000 people watched in amazement, I mean, this is 1952 and not everybody had a TV yet. 
Derry took the brand new prototype airplane up to an altitude of eight miles. That's like, I don't know, 50,000 feet or 13 kilometers. Then came downward in a supersonic power dive, creating a sonic boom. As he leveled out, then pulled up to into another climb, everything seemed to be going fine. Until, with no warning, the outer skin of both wings simply peeled off and ripped away. I'm no expert at aeronautics, but I'm guessing that ain't good. As the crowd fell silent and watched, the wings of the plane came apart. The cockpit, separated from the rest of the plane, fell like a rock and crashed in full view of the air show audience. You gotta wonder if any of those in the audience would ever go to another air show in their life. Both Derry and Richards were killed instantly. Meanwhile, the two jet engines, weighing a ton each, spun off in different directions, tumbling end over end. One of them landed in a parking lot, crushing two motorcycles. Big deal. The other engine broke into two flaming chunks of red-hot metal, both of which came down in the middle of the crowd. 29 spectators were killed, 63 injured in an accident that would later be blamed on a design flaw in the aircraft. Some spectators left at that point. But after a pause of about an hour to carry away the dead and clear debris from the runway, the air show continued with the rest of the day's program. And I'm wondering what percentage of the crowd stuck around for the rest of the show, you sick freaks. Finally, I mean, was TV really that bad? Finally, in rotten history on September 7th, 1895, 128 years ago this week, in the middle of a working day at the Osceola Mine in the copper country of Michigan's western penin- or upper peninsula, <laughs> western, it is in the west, uh, a fire of unknown origin broke out in sta- shaft number three. All the mine shafts contained scaffolding and other structures made of wood, and fires were actually rather common there. Yep, fires in a mine where miners worked were common back in the late 19th century, which says something about the late 19th century. Such fires were usually put out quickly, you think? So at first, many of the 200 men and boys working underground that day were not too concerned, nor were they apparently concerned about child labor. But as gas and smoke from the fire in shaft three spread to shafts four and five, some workers were overcome by the poisonous fumes, while others clamored to get out of the mine. 30 miners were killed, including four boys, the most deadly mining accident in the history of Michigan's copper country, which is now in the process of revitalizing their copper mining industry. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is, what will you miss most about Western civilization and over on Patreon, we have a number of responses. Uh, first up comes from. Come on, load. <laughs> ah, the phrase uh, "come on, load." Yeah, that's... see that on the back of trucks all the time when you're on ninety. <laughs> <laughs> it's not radio friendly, depending on uh, yeah. context clues. Oh, no, um, uh, Chauncey G. Replies, fries with gravy. Oh, God. <laughs> to which 
Yairo M asks, but not the cheese curds? <laughs> That's a good question. Good question there. Good question yeah. there. And by the way, uh, pork rinds are way better than fries when you're getting poutine. Oh, I've never tried that. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Pearls over on uh, Broadway has okay. it. Okay. It's great. All right. I'll have to ch- I haven't been there in a long time. Um, Edson C. replies, some of the music, art, literature, and films were pretty good. <laughs> Jeffrey T. <laughs> replies, all of the ionic columns and busts of Socrates. <laughs> Zach, the chromatic scale. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't all think that's going away. No, it's all the notes. Um, chance, reaping benefits from unequal exchange while weeping about wealth inequality. <laughs> You just nailed the why this is hell, Chance. Yes, I think uh, Chance is going through the same cognitive dissonance uh-huh. that we're all going through. Oh, man. Uh, Erica X replies, the friends we made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm going to have to remember that one. <coughs> Old Grouch, my nieces and nephews, my wife of half a century, and my friend Charlie and his family. However, if civilization collapses... It is unlikely I will be alive. Oh, I was in San Francisco in 1969. I missed that already. <laughs> That's because of the poster. Uh, uh, I yeah. a psychedelic poster from 1969 yeah. because I put, uh, you know, the question from hell in a search engine and then clicked on images. Yep. And that's what comes up when you say, what will you miss most about Western civilization? Huh. All right. Yeah, go figure. Apparently, it was on DuckDuckGo, too. It wasn't an algorithm on my end. Apparently, DuckDuckGo will miss uh, the counterculture. Yeah, of, of the 1960s. <laughs> of the 1960s. Man, what a counterculture it was. <laughs> um, the super gap at Haight-Asbury explains to you exactly how much that counterculture is. <laughs> um, Tarzanimal was the Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> uh, David S., New York Pizza. Uh, I guess that passes in pizza. It's no tavern style. No. Uh, Nick E. replies, the uncertainty of whom to tip. <laughs> Dean T, replying to what will you miss most about Western civilization, replies, summertime at a baseball game with a warm beer in my hand and a cold hot dog in my lap. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Essential, replies, the water. (laughs) Neil C, replies, J.K. Rowling. Wow. Bumming me out. Wow. Spot on there. Yep. Fabio L. replies, the metric system. (laughs) And simpler name, please, replies, criticizing the Western civilization. (laughs) Do you want some Twitter? Sure. Let's do Twitter. We've got two uh, responses on the website, formerly known as Twitter. Peter. It's Bot- still Twitter.com. I know. Unless you change that to X.com. I'm not calling it X. What it's is Twitter.com. X.com I don't anyway. know. I, don't I should probably not check that on no. a work computer. Um, <laughs> uh, Petre G responds all the exceptionalism and Arby's. <laughs> and in a similar vein, Alligator of Rhythm, that's a great name, replies. Free refills. 
Oh, man. All right, I'm checking out X.com right yeah, now. Yeah, please. I'm doing it on a tablet, so I can't get in too much trouble. There you go. Oh, hey, X.com goes to Twitter.com. Uh, okay, it goes so to So just Twitter. freaking call it. <laughs> so their own website is a redirect to yeah. their old website yes. name. Yes. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, run. How did this guy make billions? Uh, uh, we don't have time to change that original URL. We just don't have the time. No. We want to own Twitter.com. Just That's keep, probably it. Just keep moving fast and yeah. breaking things. Yep. Uh, over on Discord, Crime Doctor 2019 says <laughs> Jake Tapper's smugness. <laughs> and then last, we have Cam. I'll miss all the Easter eggs that Western civilization leaves behind. And then there's a link to a CNN article titled The Drying Danube River Reveals Explosive-Laden World War II Nazi Warships. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a happy Thanks. CNN story. Yeah, so uh, that's everybody but Facebook. All right, and so we'll get to that tomorrow with Dan. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answers at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. I'm still calling it tweet. You can point, uh, post it at our Patreon. You can post it on Discord. If you're a member of the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group, you can post it there. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. Will, what's Jeff's Moment of Truth about this week? Jeff flies the dog-whistling skies. <laughs> that sounds like fun. It does. Uh, so at this point, we were going to have Seb Vooper on the show to do his past inside the present. But a work meeting came up that we were aware of before the show, but uh, it just didn't work out with scheduling. And we apologize to Seb. And we apologize to everybody who was looking forward to hearing Seb on the show this week. He will be back next Monday. Will, who is coming up here as our next guest on This Is Hell. Our next guest is writer and researcher Amanda Moore, who wrote the Nation article, Undercover with the New Alt-Right. For 11 months, I pretended to be a far-right extremist. I discovered a radical youth movement trying to infiltrate the Republican Party. She also posted the follow-up piece, The War Within the Young Republican Party. At the Republican National Convention, far-right figures made few inroads but they did read my nation investigation. <laughs> yes, right. they did. Uh, Amanda's work, not surprisingly, focuses on far-right extremism. You know, uh, it kind of uh, harkens back to our interview that we were just having with Lisa about how she said that the uh, Republican Party would not be able to uh, keep young people in line if they keep decimating the universities and making uh, and undermining uh, costs and funding for a university from the federal level and that that's going to hurt the Republican Party moving forward because it hurts young people. And then we are going to be discussing uh, with Amanda tomorrow how there's this huge divide within the, y the young Republican movement here in uh, the U.S. because of the divide that is all about Trump or is it all about about conservatism. So mm -hmm. we're going to be continuing that conversation tomorrow. Uh, but as I said earlier, uh, we got a question from hell on, for me on Patreon a couple weeks ago. Patreon patron PF asked what it would take for me to have a four-day work week, work week and a relaxing three-day weekend without a overworking or losing sleep to do so. 
But I can't really do that unless I get your permission because this is completely listener-supported. This is hell. So you are the boss. So we posted a question for Patreon patrons, and that is, would you continue to support This Is Hell on Patreon if the show went from three 80-minute episodes plus the Patreon podcast to two 90-minute shows and not only continuing the Patreon podcast but also providing more hellish content on Patreon and across social media? If uh, for, So I can have a four-day week week work week and a three-day uh, weekend so here's how patreon patrons feel about us cutting back from 380 minute shows every week to 290 minute shows and if they would continue to support the show kaz answers well duh you'd still have any monthly support from me Edson C. says, I wouldn't care if you did one episode a month. I'd still support the show. You've been such a marvelous interviewer over the years I've listened to you. You deserve support as well as good health. Daphne Manuela replies, yes, lead the way on a four-day week. Andrea T. responds, I'd support working only as much as Chuck's body would support. So if that's somehow two 90-minute shows, great. If other weeks the efforts need to be balanced on the research doctor appointments and however Chuck knows how to rest, that is good, too. We who are your patrons have a vast library of this is hell to entertain us. If Chuck needs quality time to be a human being and not be my personal clown for a few weeks out of the month, I would still support this is hell because I like quality over quantity. So thank you, Andrea, for calling me your personal clown. And not your personal monkey. Tynan S. writes 100%. I want Chuck to be healthy and well much more than I want three episodes a week. Maybe Chuck should also unionize, which is a brilliant idea, Tynan. Except I don't know if it's possible to have a union that only has one member. David S. simply says, of course. R.E.H. insists everyone protect Chuck at all costs. Nasrafej, which is just Jefferson backwards, left an emoji of a fist in solidarity. Earl P. replies with abso-positively. Mark C. responds absolutely would support any changes needed to make Chuck's life more livable. And then there's NYCM and A-Hole. So he says, or they say, we'll need a new version of this, and that's Death Metal Friday by the band Dream Eater. It's one word, and the only letter that's actually, oh my god, yeah, Dream Eater, only letter that's capitalized is E. So it says Dream (laughs) Eater. Okay. Also chiming in is Julie S., who says of us having a four-day work week and a relaxing three-day weekend. Hell yeah, three-day weekends. F work, non-sarcastic. Old friend, old grouch says he would support such a move without hesitation. Personally, I've been retired and on my own schedule for 20 years. Chuck has done us all a great service. I'll try to increase my donation if that helps. And old grouch did, and it does help old grouch, so thanks. The wonderful Neil C. writes... Since this is hell, you should do whatever the hell you want. Wallum responds, meager as it is, my support for the program is unconditional at this point. You can do no wrong with any change that will let us 
worry less about your health, which is very kind. And Chauncey G answers, Chuck must protect and nurture his physical, mental, and emotional health. A four-day work week certainly sounds like it would help, and I fully support the adoption of one. Public Universal Comrade simply states yes, and Bruce S. says, of course. Nathan B. agrees, stating, yes, you all produce so much quality content in a week that I often don't even have time to get through it all in addition to the Patreon podcast. Do what you need to do for your well-being. Sarah says, Chuck, take some time off or reduce the total number of episodes per week if that's helpful. And Kilter, longtime listener Kilter, who actually came all the way from Ireland. I think it was Ireland. Sorry, Kilter, if it was Wales, uh, to visit us during office hours years ago. Kilter writes, my love is so unconditional. I don't even listen to the Patreon podcast. You son of a bitch. I am worried about who will feed that cat, though. Kilter, no need to ever worry about Mel. There's a long list and long line of people who want to feed Mel on a daily basis, and they do, whether they should or not, as Mel's main purpose in life, aside from being loved by everyone, is eating rats. And the more they feed him, the less rats Mel eats. Thanks to everyone for your very, very thoughtful, caring, and kind answers and comments. We truly appreciate it. So this week is kind of a dry run for the possibility that we may be cutting back to the, on the number of shows we do moving forward. <sighs> Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. Thanks to Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who was going to be here for the past inside the present, and we apologize for the scheduling issue. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.